Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching or listening from. If it's your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSD.com and click I'm new. We fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thanks. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that you see listed. We've been in a journey through the book of Daniel that began at the start of the brand new year. We've made it through the first three chapters so far. We learned in Daniel chapter one that when the culture begins to shift, we need to stand firm in our faith. And then we took away from Daniel chapter two that God is powerful, that he's wise, and he has set up a kingdom which will never end. We took a look at culture's greatest test in Daniel chapter three. And we had to split that up into two spots, right? Two, two parts. The first part dealt with the first six verses and the battle over worship. And so God's motivation for worship, it's always love. The enemies is always fear. In the second part, we jumped into the story itself and learned from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we need to trust God's will, that God may save us in the fire instead of from the fire. That's important. And how we need to put God first over ourselves in every circumstance. And so all of this brings us to Daniel chapter four, just to give you an idea of where we are in the timeline of things. Okay. As we get into the story, we're nearing the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's getting older at this point, a succession plan is probably taking place. He's probably, he's probably reigning too, with one of his sons. It's kind of like a co-regent and that was pretty common back then. Um, that way the next King would have some mentoring from his father and could also gain experience before stepping into that role completely and totally on his own. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful figure in the ancient Middle East, maybe even in the entire world at this point of human history. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, it's vast. It holds one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I'm sure you've heard that before. And it stretches from North Africa to Iran down into the Arabian Peninsula. So there's, there's, there's numerous world empires in parts of the globe right now too, but scholars are pretty sure. They, they're, they're pretty much in agreement. Nebuchadnezzar is one of, if not the most powerful figure on the planet. Don't forget that for the story, okay? Up to this point, um, he's become pretty familiar with God. Uh, he said a lot of good things about God. He's offered high praise, but he's not all in. So Babylon's a polytheistic culture. So for Nebuchadnezzar to, you know, to give God praise is not a big deal to him. It's just one of the many gods that he will recognize and worship, albeit that's the most powerful God, right? Uh, and that's something Nebuchadnezzar at this point, uh, is, it, he, he's recognized that God's powerful, but that's gonna change a little bit here in the story. Uh, because Nebuchadnezzar is gonna have one more dream. And unlike Daniel chapter two, where the dream isn't really the focus. It is the focus here because Nebuchadnezzar and specifically his pride are in the spotlight. So let's pick it up where Nebuchadnezzar is speaking with Daniel uh, about the dream in verse number nine. Okay. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Uh, I said to him, Belshazzar, Belshazzar is Daniel's Babylonian name, okay? Chief of the magicians, I know the spirit of the gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. See Daniel chapter two, we talked about that earlier. 
Now tell me what my dreams, uh, tell me my dreams. While I was lying in my, my bed, this is what I dreamed. And I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth and the tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches and all the world was fed from this tree. Verse 13, then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven and the messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from the branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. Verse 16, for seven periods of time, this is seven years. Now remember that because when we get to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to deal with these things called 77s, okay? So this, 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 is a, this is a year. Let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. And he gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Belshazzar, that was the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can do so, but you can tell me because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So it seems kind of strange that the king is terrified about a dream, <laughs> right? I, you know, of all the terrible dreams I've had, uh, going back to my childhood, being chased by Groot was not one of them. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but there's reason that Nebuchadnezzar uh, should be afraid. There's reason for it. And, and, and here's why. The centerpiece of the dream, the, the tree, it's cut down. And of course, I know our thought is, you know, okay, well, that's it. What's the deal? What made this so terrifying is that, you know, the tree symbolized something important in Nebuchadnezzar's day. The imagery of a large tree like that uh, represented the divine order maintained by ancient Mesopotamian kings who were viewed as representatives of the god Assur. It's one of the gods that Babylonians would worship. Sometimes the king was even seen as a personification of this tree. Now you kind of see where we're going here, right? So if the tree is seen as symbolic of the divine world order, then the king was seen as a representation of the order in the form of a man. So in other words, the king was seen as being a true image of a god, even though the kings rarely viewed themselves that way. We talked about that earlier uh, in, in our study, but you get the point, right? So like they're seen as divine, at least in the eyes of the masses. And so Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree, which he realizes represents himself, at least to a certain level here, and it does freak him out, knowing that the tree is cut down. And so listen to Daniel and, and how he describes the meaning of the dream. Verse number 20, that tree, your majesty, is you. So Daniel confirms that here, okay? Now you've grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. And then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with animals of the field for seven periods of time. Again, that's, that's seven years. Verse 24, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord, the King. You'll be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. <laughs> it's not a fate that I would want to share. I don't know about you. 
you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass as you live this way until you learn the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. And this means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned, watch this, that heaven rules. Verse 27, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning. Do what's right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. And perhaps then you'll continue to prosper. I like that Daniel cares about the well-being of the very king who is responsible for destroying his nation, his family, his, his life as he knew it. I mean, like that by itself will preach, won't it? Now, the dream that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar, it carries a warning. And it's not just for Nebuchadnezzar, it's really for us today, too, as well. Like you can draw some takeaways from that yourself about stopping the insanity of prideful living. There's a few traits which mark a life living in the insanity of pride. One of those traits is this, that we're, we're insane when we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. At the time of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is, is dictating the words here in the beginning. Verse number four, he goes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. So it's not like we would expect anything less. He's a king. Prosperity kind of goes with the territory. But the language certainly gives way to the idea that Nebuchadnezzar feels very secure with himself, very secure in you know, just all that he has. When we feel secure, especially comfortable, we lean a lot more on ourselves and a lot less on God. Now, something I've noticed just by observing historical trends is that every generation which experiences any level of prosperity struggles with knowing how to handle it. Prosperity brings a false sense of security and an immense sense of entitlement, which leads to a relationship with God that's dwindled to nearly nothing. When we're prosperous, we tend to treat God as our, our, just our personal emergency button that we hit when we kind of run out of options and you know, our back's against the wall. We pray a lot you know, when we're in trouble. We pray a whole lot less when we're not. And when the world's in chaos and it's uncertain, we, 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 you know, we can't get to church fast enough, right? But when times are good, I mean, we can't really get to church at all. <laughs> and that's kind of the ebb and flow that you see in lives of, of folks who are more self-sufficient than they are God-dependent. Now, how do we stay God-dependent? Well, one of the best ways is, is, is to pray. We just ended at Radiant Church our, our 21 days of prayer, the first phase of that for the year. We'll do it again in August. And we need 21 days of prayer because we want to keep God first. First to start the year, and then as we come back from summer and we get into the fall and holiday season, we want to put God first on the latter half of the year. So that your prayer reminds you that it's not about you, right? There's a higher power that you're not in control. It's a great way to stay humble and lean more on God in your life. And it's also a check against pride. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's been self-sufficient. He's not been God-dependent. Uh, he's given one final warning. How did it turn out for him? <laughs> well, uh, verse 28. But these things did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk in the flat of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city... He said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I've built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Nebuchadnezzar was renowned as a great builder. 
Verse 31, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. I had not left his, his, his lips yet. O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields of wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone that he chooses. Verse 33, that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. And King Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and ate grass like a cow. And he was drenched with the dew of heaven. And he lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar looks out on the city that he's built, maybe even on the hanging gardens themselves, you know, and he marvels at his greatness. We're insane with pride when we give ourselves credit instead of thanking God. We're not kings. Maybe one of you watching or listening might be, I don't know, but the vast majority of us here, we're, we're not. We find ourselves at times, though, walking in similar type shoes to Nebuchadnezzar. It's okay to be proud of your accomplishments and your successes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. However, when you begin to bask in your own glory so much that you take credit for it instead of acknowledging that it was God who gave you that skill set. It was God who gave you the knowledge. It was God who opened the right door at the right time. It was God who orchestrated the networking that led to that big contract. You know, you're, you're drowning in a sandy of pride when you credit yourself and don't give anything to God. I like how the Living Bible phrases 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Check this out. Paul is writing here and he says this. Uh, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why act as though you're so great and as though you have accomplished something on your own? Oh, I love that. All we have, we have because of God, because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. He's given it to us. And throughout this series, we have seen the theme of God's sovereignty woven in every single story. That God is in complete control. He was in control when Judah was destroyed and Daniel and his friends were sent into exile. He was in control when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, they, they took their courageous stands against the king's, you know, worship edict in, in chapter 3. He was in control when he gave Nebuchadnezzar his power, and then here in this chapter, he takes it away. The most powerful man in the 6th century BC was reduced to nothing because without God, He is nothing. You know, God's given Him everything, and we are nothing without God as well. What we have today, what we'll have tomorrow, God's given it to us. Let's take credit and thank God instead. Now, a big question that's been asked by everybody, historians, archaeologists, theologians, people just like you and me, did this whole story really happen? Because <laughs> it seems kind of odd and strange. How does the most powerful man in the ancient Near East just disappear for seven years? Let me give you a couple ideas just, just to address the topic. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but just, just to kind of get you interested. One, nothing embarrassing is going to be included by ancient historians regarding someone powerful like Nebuchadnezzar. So ancient historians did not record history like we do today. They, they, they don't, you know, we start with where someone's born, where their, their childhood took place at, and we get all the details, the good and the bad and the ugly. But ancient historians only care 
about pivotal moments which define an individual and their greatest achievements. They don't care about the biological details and things like that um, that are mundane or especially negative. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why the Gospels almost exclusively focuses on the life of Christ as it pertains to his ministry, because those few years defined who he was and what he came to do. Uh, Two, we do have a wild and somewhat questionable but definitely interesting fragment that was found near the Qumran Caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. It contains a story about a Babylonian king named Nabonidus who fell ill for seven years near the end of his life and was healed by an unnamed Jewish diviner. Now, it would take a whole other hour just to walk through that particular piece of evidence, and we don't have that kind of time. But suffice it to say, even without the biblical text, there is reason to believe that this event could have happened, occurred, certainly was very plausible. All right? Now, regardless of what you might think about the historicity of the story, here's the most important part, the lesson, the takeaway. Unchecked pride is a liability in our lives. The picture of Nebuchadnezzar, it's, 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 it's going insane, is a great picture of what pride can do to us. Think of all the stupid things we do. And, you know, we say or we don't do or don't say because we allow pride just to run amok in our lives. It's insane to live with pride. And we're living in the insanity of pride when we're self-sufficient, when we give ourselves credit, and when we think we know best instead of acknowledging it's God who rules. There's an arrogance to a a person in a culture which thinks they know best instead of God. Have we noticed that like whenever tragedy strikes, our culture wants to know where God is? You know, if God is so good, if God is real, if God cares, why did that terrible thing happen? Why didn't God stop it? Where does God, why doesn't God care? You know, we hear about that kind of stuff. The hard truth is that for much of the last century, certainly well into this century as well, we've severely diminished the role of God in our lives. Now, it's, it's far deeper than something trivial like prayer in schools. I, I know for some of you, taking prayer to schools is a big deal. Man, we are way past that, all right? This is much, much, much deeper. Our culture has rewritten the rules on sexuality. We've played the role of creator on gender. We've, we've called sin disorders. We've brought lawsuits against every type of symbolism or act that, that, that might come within striking distance of being related to God or Christ or just the divine in general. We've abandoned everything which is foundational to a healthy culture. And then we dare ask God in the midst of pain and tragedy, where is he? Why didn't he show up? Why doesn't he care? A culture without God reflects exactly what it's become. We can't legislate our way out of this. So you can't make Christianity a litmus test for justices or candidates. You can do it all you want, but it doesn't get you where you need to be. We can't become more enlightened or progressive to turn this kind of thing around either. The only way we steer our culture back is for us to get on our knees each and every day and acknowledge that God rules and He reigns. When we can do that individually and collectively within our culture, then our pride can end and our sanity can be restored. Look at verse 34. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned. I praised and worshiped the Most High 
And I honor the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth, they're nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returns to me, Nebuchadnezzar says, so do my honor and glory and kingdom, and my advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of Heaven in all of his acts. They're just, they're true, and he is able, look at this, to humble the proud. Quickly, I want to give you three ways our sanity is restored and the insanity of pride ends. First, we exalt the King of Heaven. We decrease and allow God to increase. We're not in control. It's not about us. It all starts with God. It all ends with God. We didn't forge our own path. You know, not really. We're, in, we're not self-made. Rather, there's a God in heaven who carved our path, who built us up, who made us who we are and what we are. And what we have is given by Him. And who we are is only because of Him. Second, we acknowledge God's ways are right. And so pride tries to, you know, figure God out, to modify Him to fit us and our culture, and that never ends well. We talked about this last time in part two of the chapter three. We try to take God's place in our lives. We're only inviting destruction. So instead, we need to accept God, accept who He is, accept His word. And when we do that, we will find peace, freedom, a life worth living. And then finally, our sanity is restored. We walk in humility. Humility isn't putting yourself down. It's not tearing yourself apart. In fact, the, that sort of display is actually not really humility, but actually a form of pride. You're tearing yourself apart so others can look at you and affirm you, lift you up, and give you the spotlight, all that kind of great stuff. Humility, however, is simply thinking of yourself less. God matters more. Others matter more. And when you live a life putting God and people first, you're truly living the blessed life. I want to leave you with this from James before we go. I think it's a great summation of what we've been talking about so far here today. James chapter 4, verse number 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. One way or another, you're going to find yourself in a humbled state before an almighty and powerful God. And you can choose to humble yourself and let God honor you in the process, or... You can go through the difficulty of having God humble you. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather do the former. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar how the latter worked out for him. Father, I love you. I thank you for who you are and your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray for those of us who are watching, listening today. Perhaps you're battling with pride. We, we've been doing things our way. We've been putting the spotlight on us. We've not been giving you credit. We've been self-sufficient, not God-dependent. You know, we've, we have uh, been doing all types of things, Lord, that, that put everything away from you, put the focus on us and who we are and, and, and how great we are, what we've done for ourselves. And we're basking in our own glory. And boy, that's just, a, that's just the quick road to nowhere. God, I pray that we would choose to walk in humility. I pray that we choose to exalt you today. I pray, Lord, that we choose to acknowledge your ways are right. We don't know best. You know best. Lord, may we choose to humble ourselves first 
so we can avoid the painful process of you humbling us. But God, if we're so hard-headed and so stubborn and so just rock-solid, God, I pray you do humble us. I pray, Lord, you know, you do uh, what it takes to bring us to a place. And we're on our knees and we are humble before you because, God, uh, I would much rather us be humbled by you in, in, in a difficult process than to leave this world full of pride, not knowing who you are and exiting into eternity. And so, Lord, I, I just pray today that we are humbled in your presence and in your sight. And if there are those of us here today who say, you know what, I've been full of pride and been trying to lead my own life, but today I want to give my life over to God, then, Lord, I, I pray for those folks right now. If that's you, all you're going to do is just say a prayer like this. Say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Cleanse me for my wrong. I am sorry that my pride has kept me from following you. I, I, I need your forgiveness in my life. I'm going to acknowledge your ways are best, God. And from this day forward, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to submit my life and myself to you, Lord. You call the shots uh, for me. And from this day forward, I'm surrendering, humbly walking and surrendering, Lord, to you. God, I thank you for, for each person out there who's praying that prayer. I thank you for each person out there, God, who is walking in humility here today, knowing, Lord, uh, that you are the King of Heaven, that you rule, that your ways are best, God. Now, Father, you uh, are Lord of all. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com. Or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.